This podcast is a ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Hatfield, Pennsylvania. And now, the message. Well, uh, again, if you're a guest, I'll just explain. We are in the middle of a series studying the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, you missed all the juicy stuff just a couple of weeks ago. We talked about marriage and sex. And uh, that tape is for sale. The price has gone up because they're just flying off the shelves. Um, and last week we talked about sex and singleness. And if there's one thing we've learned about studying Paul's letter to this church in Corinth, boy, it's that he's speaking right into where they live. And the fact that they were living in a kind of cosmopolitan, affluent, uh, worldly uh, city, enjoying prosperity and having the luxury of debates and talks. And we just can't help but miss that over and over and over again, when he's speaking directly into their lives, it has such a ring of truth for us. We've also seen uh, Paul be really firm at times, and then other times when he backs off and he shows grace. And now as they've written him, he's into this section now where they, they wrote him asking questions And he's answering those questions one by one now concerning the thing you wrote me about. And as he's talking about marriage and singleness and sex and today divorce and even remarriage, as he talks about these difficult subjects, we can hear him become tender. In fact, every instruction we've seen so far has been matched with an exception, which is not the way we think of Paul. We think of Paul being such a hard nose. But as a pastor, he knew that nobody's life lines up to the ideal, including his own. If he were here today, he would launch right into his story of his recovery from his past. And so when he speaks to us, we feel that tenderness. And it's the same as we jump into this study today. By the way, if, uh, if you didn't notice the little logo there, but if you do use the U version on your phone on your app, the app on your phone, uh, then you can find Crossroads under the live events. All the passages are already preloaded there, as well as the announcements in the bulletin, and you can take notes and they're saved. So if you want to do that instead of listening to me, go right ahead. So here we are in 1 Corinthians 7. We're going to start reading in verse 10. If you have a copy of the scriptures, I would encourage you to take it out. Uh, for, For me, I know it helps me to be looking at it in the scriptures, but it's also projected up here. Paul writes this, Now to the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. So I think right off the bat, Paul's going to make a point. He's going to start making instruction, giving us instruction. And now he's talked about widows and widowers, and, and he's talked about the value of staying single. Remember that in this context, there were kind of polarized opinions about sex. Some of the people in the church were going to temples and and, uh, interacting with prostitutes as a part of their worship. He says, that's got to end, that kind of immorality. On the flip side, there are these ascetics who are saying, you know, if you're really spiritual, you'll drop all of that earthly, worldly stuff, including sex, because it's... We're, we're new creations. We're new beings now. We're married to Christ. And so, you know, we shouldn't partake of sex even if you're married. In fact, if you're in a marriage, maybe you should just get single. And so there were these polarizing opinions. And apparently they wrote 
And they said, so shouldn't everybody who's married go ahead and divorce and be single for Jesus? And, and he, so he's correcting these things. Now he gets to this new category of believing couples. And his instruction is pretty clear. He says, believing couples should not divorce. So we should just talk for a second before we go any further. Because many of you have experienced divorce. And I'm very aware of the fact that just those words being on the screen can create some feelings inside of you. Uh, all the feelings won't be the same. Some of you will get angry. You feel judged. Uh, some of you just feel great pain like you were such like a sense of failure. And, and, and all the emotions in between. Um, there are very few things that are more painful than a divorce. And so from the very beginning, I think Paul, with his background of being a murderer, would be gentle and say, I want to tell you what the goal is. But knowing what I've already said before, there's grace. So he's going to, through this passage, talk about how things should be. And then he's going to talk about exceptions because things are never as they should be. So if you can, if you can hang on to your heart, if that's a painful spot for you, and, uh, and suspend judgment or suspend clicking it off, I think perhaps what Jesus has to say through the Apostle Paul will encourage you. Now, the first thing I want to say about divorce, uh, says believer, believing couples should not divorce, is that once I started, how many of you heard that you know, one out of every two marriages ends in divorce. The divorce rate is skyrocketing. I mean, skyrocketing. We hear that all the time. I was kind of surprised when I researched it to find out that that actually isn't true. It, it was true, especially in the early and mid-70s, really all of the 70s, the combination of the feminist movement and some of the huge upheavals that were happening in our, in our culture. Um, there were very high divorce rates. But nowadays, and I don't want to get too far off, but how do you figure out divorce rate? Well, you would think it's simple, right? You count up how many people got married that year and how many people got divorced that year, and there you have it. But that's, there's one glaring error with that kind of math. The people who are getting divorced this year weren't necessarily getting married this year. And so the number is actually more difficult to nail down. And as I drilled down, I found out that actually the divorce rate is more like about uh, 41%, and it's dropping precipitously. The divorce rate is going down. Now, some of it is because people are waiting longer to get married. It also has to do with people when they do get married now, because they've experienced divorce, they'll say to each other, let's make sure we know how to make this work. But the truth of the matter is, it's not quite as bleak as sometimes you hear. And actually, that's just a Huffington News uh, screen shot just, just to show you that, it, that it's true. It's, it's, it's a matter of uh, news. So when Jesus says, married couples should not divorce, he says, not I, but the Lord. What he's saying is he's quoting Jesus. Jesus taught on this. Jesus on divorce. He talked about it in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, Mark 10, Luke 16. If you want to look those passages up later, you take notes in, in your notes page. Today we're going to look at what Jesus had to say in Matthew 19. 
And then we're going to, knowing that Paul is referring to what Jesus has already taught. So we're going to look at what Jesus taught, and then we're going to make some applications. I just want to ask you to be open. Perhaps today you had an assumption about what the Bible said about divorce, and you were mistaken. And I want you just to keep your minds open. In Matthew 19, verse 4, you know the story, uh, perhaps, that Jesus is walking along, and, and there's all the, the Pharisees constantly testing him and, and trying to catch him and trip him up. The people loved him, and they were trying to get him to kind of lose that popular standing. And so they came to him with a popular question. In one of those debates that almost no one could settle, they were constantly talking about it. It was, it was one of those questions that no matter what he answered, he was going to lose. And they said, so Jesus... Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? See, the debate was between roughly two schools. One school of thought said that, you know, it should be only for gross immorality that you divorce. And the other side said, anything you find wrong. I mean, if she, cooked, if she burned dinner, if whatever happened, like, you know, whatever reason. And so where would you land? And I won't get into how he loses no matter how he answers. The bottom line is they thought they were going to trick him. And this is Jesus' response. He says, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And he said, For this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So Jesus refers back to the creation account when they're talking about what a man was allowed to do regarding divorcing his wife. And what he says is pretty clear. This wasn't the intent to begin with. The intent was that two would become one, and once two are one, no one should separate them. This is what God intended. Now, Jesus is not correcting the law because later they're going to bring it up. Moses does allow for divorce. So he's not correcting the law, but what he's about to do is he's going to correct their twisted interpretation of the law. See, they were taking the law and making it about something that it was never intended to be about. You see, they were asking, how much freedom does a man have to divorce his wife? But when you read the Old Testament law when it comes to divorce, what we find out was the issue wasn't how good of a reason does a man have, have to have to divorce his wife. Divorce was instituted in the Old Testament law to protect the wife. You see, it was an easy thing for a man in that... that uh, male-dominated society to simply say, you know, you're getting on my nerves, get out of here. And any woman without a family, with, I mean, she couldn't work, and she, would, she was basically abandoned. The laws of divorce were in place not, not to give the guy a way out, but to protect women from abuse and abandonment and immorality. It allowed them to walk away with something that showed that they were the innocent party. And it, they, could, they could continue with some, some kind of life. It's not what we think. 
So that it's interesting that the Pharisees had turned something that was really about protecting women, and they had twisted the conversation into what are men free to do. Typical guys, they turn it so it's all about them. And Jesus' point is, it's supposed to be for a lifetime. So then they come back. Oh, well, that's, my, that's our point, that the Old Testament is actually pretty progressive. You can't find another world religion. You can't find another culture in the Old Testament period, even in the New Testament period, where women are given the kinds of protections that the Old Testament law provided. Now, when we read it from our society, from our culture right now, it sounds a little archaic. I mean, at one point, women who were caught in adultery would be stoned. But then again, so would the guys. And, and we think, oh, my goodness. And, and there was a time in his history when then that practice stopped, but there was still punishment involved. Of course, if you were to kind of travel to that part of the world even today, people are still losing hands and feet and heads. That's the culture there. In the midst of that kind of a culture, God instituted laws for Israel that said, Hang on, there has to be a trial. Somebody has to look into this. And if all this isn't true or if there isn't proof, if he wants to get rid of her, fine. But you've got to write, give her a, a certificate of divorce so that she, everyone knows that it wasn't her fault. And she has a shot at life. Well, they respond in verse 7. He says, well, why then did Moses give us uh, command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. If, if God didn't intend for divorce, then why did Moses allow it? And Jesus says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because you're, uh, that's my note, he's speaking to the men, because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Uh, who does Jesus put the burden on? It's interesting that he doesn't even mention a woman here. He says, you guys are asking how easy it is for you to get free. And I'm telling you that unless it's on biblical grounds, you are not allowed to go marry another man. So Jesus knows that the purpose of the Old Testament law was to make sure that a woman had a way out. Otherwise, she would be facing a lifelong, a life sentence of poverty or abuse or abandonment. She'd just walk away as, as, as soiled goods. I don't know what's wrong. Something's wrong. In this culture, she would have virtually no hope at all. And divorce offered the woman protection. Not what we usually think of. By the way, did you know that even today, over 70% uh, of the divorces are initiated by women in our culture today? Interesting. Let's flash back to 1 Corinthians then. So Paul says, to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. He's quoting the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, oh, wait, there's an exception, isn't there? But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. You see, in the book of Genesis, marriage is described as kind of a leaving and cleaving. 
A man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. What a divorce does from God's perspective is it certifies something that is already true in practice. A couple marries, they make promises before God, they are made one flesh. Something happens later where that covenant relationship, they've promised each other things. They have obligations to one another. Now someone has broken those promises. Perhaps, often, it's both. But there's sometimes one offending party more than the other. Perhaps it is sexual immorality. You broke that clause that said this is mutual just between the two of us. is exclusive. You broke that. Or perhaps it's because you promised to protect and instead you have abused or hurt. Or you promised to provide and instead you have been gone and abandoned. You've, you've wasted our money. We're, it, but you've broken a commandment. I want, I want you to see that by the time you get to a divorce from God's perspective, the oneness of the marriage has already been broken. And the divorce simply acknowledges what is already true. Now, in this case, he addresses wives and then later husbands, and he says, if you do divorce your husband, and since she's still bound by the rules of the marriage, so it's safe to assume that she, this divorce that he's describing is not one that's on biblical grounds. Okay? You're getting rid of him because he is just on your nerves, because he's impossible to live with. Well, that's... Yeah, that's how guys come, and, you know, and some of us have been well-trained. I'm housebroken now, but the truth of the matter is there are reasons for which God will accept a divorce. He says it happens, and his interest is to protect from further abuse. In this case, though, since she's still under that rule, apparently it wasn't. Biblical divorce. Something happened to break the covenant. If you abandoned someone or stopped supporting them, there's no more leaving. If you've committed sexual immorality, you've broken that covenant, there's no more cleaving. The, the, the leaving and cleaving parts have been broken. The, 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 the marriage is already dissolved from God's point of view. Now you're making it official. If it's not for that, then she must remain single or be reconciled to her husband because there's still a promise that binds them. I want you to notice, too, that in this case, nowhere is divorce commanded. It's allowed, but it's not commanded. A husband doesn't have to divorce his wife, even if she commits adultery. A wife doesn't have to divorce her husband, even if there's been that severe of a break in the relationship. No one thinks that it, they, the marriage is going to go on without a bump. But it's not commanded. There are other options. But if she does, she must remain unmarried, still bound by that covenant relationship. Let's go on to verse 12. And to the rest, I say this. I, not the Lord. Now, okay, so before he was quoting the Lord, now that he knows of, Jesus didn't talk about this next incident very much but he's going to speak to it anyway. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer. So now we get to this new 
category of marriage. It was this new category of a mixed marriage. One of the the spouses is a believer now and the other one isn't. Some of you are in that situation. And the question goes something like this. Paul, you don't understand. We were both pagans before and we lived sinfully. I've come to faith in Jesus. I'm a new creation. The Spirit of God lives in me. All the stuff that used to be so evil and bad, I, I want to stop. I need to get away from all those things that defile. But that might include my marriage. I mean, after all, my spouse is still not a believer, still doing some of those things. Maybe, and you know what? Sex was just a lustful, sinful thing back then. Maybe I should stop it completely. In fact, maybe I should get out of this marriage completely. Maybe I should start over as a new creation. After all, I'm part of the bride of Christ. You can almost hear how that kind of thinking would begin to seep into a church. And so you've come to faith and your spouse has not. And you're asking, would Jesus, does Jesus just want me to start over? And so Paul's addressing this new category, a mixed marriage. Maybe this marriage, they think, will defile me. Maybe it'll defile my family. And Paul says something that is exactly the opposite. His command is this in verse 12. If a brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. The next command is pretty clear. Believers in a mixed marriage should try to continue that marriage. A little surprising. Not really, though, when you consider, first of all, what God intended for marriage in the first place. But Paul goes on to explain why. Why? I mean, if, if you've been through a divorce, you know that part of the reason that happened was because there was such discontentment in the home, such strife, such tension. And, and we can certainly understand how a mixed marriage would create tension. Paul says, if they're willing to stay, stay together. Why? Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is now, they are holy. I've met your kids. I wouldn't describe them as holy. What's he he saying? It almost sounds like, hey, if one of you is saved, then God will just credit the whole family. You're all going to heaven because one of you is saved. That's that's not what he's saying at all. But how is it that a a believing husband or wife in a family has this sanctifying power? Sanctified by the the idea of just setting apart special category. And yet, you know what? This is one of those things where if we think about it a little differently, it's not hard to imagine at all. I want to suggest that there's a a tribe of people. There's a people group in South America, and they have never heard the gospel, which means people are dying and going into a Christless eternity, and we are burdened for them. They have no hope. They don't even have the scriptures in their language. And so one of us rises from us, and we say, I will go. I'll sell everything. I'm going to go live among them and try to bring them the good news. And we would send you off and we would have such hope for that tribe of people. Why? Because now there's 
a person there who knows the gospel. There's somebody there that the Spirit of God can use. There's a light amongst them. And we would have hope. Which is exactly what Paul is saying about the family of a mixed marriage. He says, believing spouse, you, just by being there, have the opportunity to show Christ, to share the gospel, to love unconditionally. You have a special role to play. Don't bail out. He goes on. He says, but, another exception, but if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. No, no, wait, wait, Mike. You just said that God doesn't want anybody to get a divorce. He intends for marriage to be forever. He does. Even a mixed marriage, one's a believer, one's not. If, if they are both willing to stay, they should stick together. Yep. And then right on the heels of that, Paul says, but, and you know why, because <laughs> that's what life does. But if the unbeliever does leave, let it be so. You see, the believing spouse is not to initiate. The believing spouse is not to leave and abandon. But if the unbelieving spouse leaves the family, in this case, because of their faith, his instruction is, let it go. The brother or sister is not bound. I believe what he means there is that, that the believing spouse is even free to remarry one day. So the question again is, if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The question is, why? why? Why would you say that? And again, the answer is found in the very next passage. For God has called us to live in peace. That tension that you feel in your home that is so difficult, God would agree. That's difficult. And his goal is for us to live in peace. And if they're going to leave, then let it happen. Now, he gives a little bit more of an idea of why. Verse 16, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, I have a question. When he says save, I mean, obviously, we don't save anybody. But by your presence, what's he saying? Is verse 16 referring to verse 15 or to verse 14? What is it that has the saving influence? Is it staying together so that you can live out Christ's love? Or is, it to letting, is, it, is he referring to letting them leave peacefully? Because God is a God of peace. I don't know. I'm not sure he intended to say either way. I think actually what he's saying is that's the motivation for either activity. Don't we tend to get divorced because of how we feel? The injustice done to us? The abundant life we're missing out on? The old ball and chain? Nag, nag, nag. The one thing you can do well is sit on the couch. 
I want you to notice that either activity in this mixed marriage, whether you stay because they're willing to stay or whether you let them leave because they insist on leaving, either activity is done so that they might come to faith. And there are stories of both even in this room. So from right here now, Paul is, this, because of this verse, he's going to kind of change directions. We're done talking about singles. We're done talking about sex. We're done talking about marriage. We're done talking about divorce or remarriage. Now he's going to start stepping back, and it's this idea. How do you know? How do you know what God will use? So now he jumps into verse 19. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands. Love God, love yourself, I mean, love others. Each person should remain in the situation in which God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who is a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who is free when called is Christ's slave. We've got to back up for a second here. Um, circumcision is nothing. Really? First of all, spoken like a woman. Uh, but, uh, no, no. Although later he says, never mind, we'll get there. Um, but here's the idea. If you know anything about the, the, the Bible story, circumcision is huge. It's the mark of the covenant. It, it, it was this dividing line, and now he says circumcision is nothing in the new covenant. See, those things that meant so much, now all those burdens have been washed away. All those lines have been washed. It's just one issue now, the issue of faith. So he says circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. Each person should remain in the situation where they are. He talked about slavery. Now, it's important for us to remind each other that when we think of slavery, we think of, like, roots. You know, we, we think of this oppressive situation in our history. And I just want to suggest that when the New Testament talks about slavery, it's, that's, that's not what slavery was like almost at all. Slavery was much more like your job, which explains why you feel the way you do about it. But that's another whole issue. Um, you see, slaves were actually well off. If, if, if you would live on the property and you would be provided for and you would provide work. And it, was, it wasn't this oppressive, dehumanizing relationship. It was simply, it was about the lowest spot on the social caste, apart from those that were like sick and diseased or lepers or those that had committed felony type job. I mean, so that you were low on the totem pole, but you were still in the mix. You would go to PTA meetings and, and uh, play on a softball team, and you, know, you would do all the normal stuff as a slave. It would be normal to want to move up the social ranks. But Paul says, hang on. If you're a slave, it's okay. If you want to get free, great. In fact, he sort of says... Uh, after all, when you think about it, a person who is a slave but a believer in Christ 
aren't you really free in Christ? And those of you who are free landowners and, you know, upper class, aren't you actually slaves to Christ? Slaves of righteousness? It's important for us to remember as believers, if you're here today, you've trusted Christ as your Savior. Uh, if you're not, I'm glad you're listening in. You're, we're glad you're here. But to those of us who have trusted Christ as our Savior, we need to remember that the kingdom that we're a part of is an upside-down kingdom. Freedom comes by submission to God's will. And because God is the one who gives freedom, we can be free regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in. Whether it's under the oppressive yoke of an employer or in the confines of a wheelchair or in a relationship with a hard-to-love person, and still we can be free. So we need to check ourselves. Are you proud of your strength? Perhaps we should be proud of our weakness. And if we feel especially weak, we need to be reminded that Christ shows his strength most gloriously through those who are weak. It's an upside-down kingdom. Verse 23, he says this, You were bought with a price. Don't become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person is responsible to God and should remain in the situation where you were when God called them. Now he's done talking to specifics. This applies to singles and married. Once married, hope to be married, mixed marriage, believer's marriage, male, female, he steps back and says, can I help you with a perspective here in all these things? Each of us, each of you were bought with a price. And we, he just took us all the way back to Calvary, all the way back to the cross. Back to Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You were bought with a price. Don't be enslaved to anybody or anything. Each of us can know that we are in a position in our life that God has assigned to us. He treats our circumstances like a ministry assignment. That terrible job. You're free to get a new one, a better one. Absolutely. But while you're there, don't forget this. You could be the brightest Gospel shining light there. What circumstance is it that you're in right now that you find yourself chafing against? It's just an irritant. Oh, 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 man, ah, oh, ah. Oh. I mean, I, I spent the whole week this week, I thought I'd broken my tractor permanently. Ah, ah, ah. I did it. Ran over a dumb sprinkler head thing. Bam. Ah. Uh, I was sure that, and it's, it's, my tractor's ancient, like, you know, 100 years old. So it was broken. I knew they don't even make parts for this. And I was just, ah, oh, I'm going to be cutting this whole thing with a, ah. And I chafe and chafe and chafe. And during all that, even, even there, Jesus saying, you know, or Mike, um, there's so many things that could happen. First of all, you, 
you could grow in your appreciation of having that tractor that somebody gave you all this time? <laughs> then, then you could kind of benefit from being a little humble, and, and, uh, and plus you'll get, it's good, good, you'll get in good shape. It's more exercise. And, uh, and Anna, I was like, okay, okay, okay. Plus, Mike, you can practice just being content. That would be something new for you, Mike. <laughs> I tried to explain. I will be content the minute things get better. <sighs> yeah, okay, sorry. And here's Paul saying, stop. Our Father is so sovereign that we are each free to see the exact circumstances that we are in as an assignment from Him. Not to restrict you. Remember Paul said it earlier. Not to restrict you. You are free to move and try. But while you're there, understand He's got you there for a reason. You play a role. You can learn and grow and shine for Him wherever you are because you were bought with a price. So glorify God with everything He's giving you. You know, every once in a while I'll hear about this. Happily divorced is better than unhappily married. And I just want to say, that's about as rare as a Sasquatch sighting. Those of you who are divorced, uh, you understand what I mean. Oh, don't get me wrong. I mean, there is grace and there is life after because God is good. But being happier after divorce, that's actually quite rare. We tend to so underestimate the effects that our divorces have on the people around us and our extended family and how it just keeps coming back and coming back and coming back. So I want to make some applications for all of us this morning. And, and I'm just going to speak to us. Of this. You, you pick what works for you. But I think maybe we should have a little less looking around for the greener grass, the things that we could pursue, just a little less of the things we could pursue. And instead, we should have a little bit more of living out the power of God right where we are. Just a little. I'm thinking maybe we should change what we're hoping for and understand that what you're hoping for in the future is not nearly as important as the impact you can make right where you are today. What you're hoping for in the future, what you're looking toward in the future, the thing that, oh, if only this would happen, is still not nearly as important as the impact you can make today. In fact, this is if we were going to boil it down, I think Paul would say this. Don't let the promises for tomorrow cause you to discount the power of today. You're not there by accident, sister. You're not there by accident. Now, some of you say, yeah, I know I'm here because I dug this hole. Yeah. And, you know, that's true, perhaps. And still God's grace is way bigger than that. He can redeem a situation that you put yourself in. And by his grace, make it a place of ministry. I think what we have to be careful about is that sometimes when we're talking about our personal lives, every single wishes they were married, that'll be the solution to their problems. 
every married person thinks that they're married to the problem. Every divorced person thinks, oh, they're the one who ruined my life. By the way, if, if you're divorced, I'm gonna, I, I, as your pastor, I'd like to ask you for the permission to talk about how you should talk about your divorce. I'm going to encourage you. Sometimes this happens that, you know, a divorce is a terrible thing, and then we get a chance to remarry in the Lord, and I've heard it happen. I've heard couples who were remarried, and they're telling young couples, oh, this is the best thing in the whole world. I'm just so glad. And I'm going to stop, stop, stop. Can we just be specific? I'm glad, too, that God gave you a second chance, and it's glorious. I'm so glad. But you're not saying that the failure of the first marriage was a good thing. Well, oh, oh no, no. I mean, I'm so glad to get out of that. Wait, okay, wait, wait, wait. But if all things being equal, wouldn't you have rather have been able to save the first one in the first place? Oh, well, yeah. There you go. So if you are divorced and happily remarried and you're going to try to encourage other young couples, let me just ask you to make sure that you make that point clear to them. Hey, look, this is wonderful, and I thought I'd never have a life again, and here we are, and God's so good, and it was so terrible. But at the same time, if I could do it all over again, and if I could make that first marriage work, would have saved all kinds of trouble. So what is it that you're chafing in right now? What will it take for you to make sure that the, the promises for tomorrow don't cause you to discount the opportunities you have right now. You can still move. You can still quit. You can still get a new... You can still do those things, absolutely. But don't forget that he's got you where you are for a reason. Let's pray. Now, if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior... I guess you need to understand that everything we've talked about is only possible because of what Jesus did on the cross. He died for, in our place and made the payment for our sins. And if, if you want to know more about that, please come talk to me or one of the other pastors or somebody on staff. But most of us here who are believers, I don't think we have to do any more application, do we? So let me invite you to share with someone today, what was the first situation that popped into your mind? That thing, that thing that you're chafing with against, kicking against, frustrated by, thorn in your flesh. What is that situation right now? Sure, it was somebody that you trust. And tell them, I'm asking God to show me how it is I can shine for him, even in that difficult situation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is because of the grace that you've shown us that we can experience the kind of grace that makes life livable. You have promised to empower your children, that there are no accidents, no coincidences, that you know exactly where we are in our lives, slave or free, married or single. And that none of those things necessarily have to impact our joy in you. That you can actually 
use our position in life as an opportunity for ministry. And in the midst of that, you start to grow us and change us. So God, teach us to be people who have enough faith in you to be content wherever, whatever circumstances in life we find ourselves. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Intro music by bensound.com. Visit us online at crossroads-cc.org.